Okay, I'm sitting here in Richmond House on the 23rd of April with uh, Lord Darcy um, to ask his views on the vision of primary care in London. Uh, he's well known for authoring the government document Healthcare for London, a framework for action. Uh, Lord Darcy, firstly, could I ask a bit about you and yeah. your formative experiences, the things that have informed your thinking about a good healthcare system? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, my colleague back in 1984, so I've done more or less... Uh, 28 years post. Uh, I was in Ireland. Back in Ireland, yeah. Uh, in, uh, uh, I qualified in 84, then I started my postgraduate training and uh, did, the, did my higher degree in uh, Trinity College and, uh, and I did my postgraduate training in Ireland and uh, it was part of the Irish tradition to gain further expertise uh, by going abroad and, uh, and you know, many came to the UK because the NHS did provide something very unique uh, in, uh, in not just in you know, surgical training but also to see the whole healthcare system being much larger, much more complicated uh, and certainly had very unique characteristics than, uh, that the Irish healthcare system didn't have in, in, in those days. So I, uh, <coughs> I, was, I was here for about a year or 18 months but somehow or the other I got lost in the system and I think I got lost. I didn't get lost in the system. I worked in an organisation for about a year as a as a registrar, and uh, and you know recognised, and they recognised. It was interesting. We were going through a an interesting. I will describe an evolution in surgery, which is moving from open surgery into keyhole or laparoscopic surgery, and uh, and. The, there was a tremendous excitement about this in certain quarters, about the potential of keyhole surgery in reducing the physical and psychological trauma of surgery. But at the other t on the other hand, there was significant resistance from a, a large number of very senior colleagues, some of them were actually my tutors, that this should never happen yes. because this yes. is bad for patients, uh, this is no good for surgery. And uh, so I could probably remember this being my first... Uh, I remember those days myself. Absolutely. It was my first interaction with resistance mm -hmm. to change, although we could see on one hand some of the advantages from a patient's perspective, but on the other hand, we were much more uh, resistant to that change as a profession. Uh, so anyhow, I was, uh, uh, I was very, very fortunate that that organisation I was working in, which was actually a district general hospital in Park Royal, which was looking at after a very deprived population, uh, a tremendous amount of inequalities there, uh, approached me to become a consultant surgeon there. And I worked there for about a couple of years and uh, as a consultant, uh, which was most enjoyable, gave me a tremendous access to, not just to what secondary care is, uh, but more importantly, when you work in smaller DGHs, you see a, a tremendous interaction between secondary care and primary care. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it was small, because it was a small community, uh, you know, I remember the patient's pathway in those days between primary and secondary, which was much, much more streamlined than it was actually, than it is actually what it is now. Uh, it was not uncommon that I received probably one or two phone calls a day mm -hmm. from a GP colleague. I have a patient. Yes. This is what's wrong with them. What do you think? Would you want to see them tonight? Would we yes. see them tomorrow? So that's my experience about primary care in, in the UK. Were there previous experiences of healthcare systems before you were qualified that gave you insight into the primary care arena rather than the specialist arena? Yes, in the undergraduate 
years, I mm-hmm. had a lot of exposure to primary care okay. in Ireland, and uh, and you do have. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that some of my best mates in undergraduate school ended up being GP GPs. colleagues, and yes. uh, they were actually the most gifted, the brightest in the class, and they were. Uh, it's commonly the case. Absolutely, and uh, and uh, they were, and, and I've you know I've I've uh, I, I probably didn't entertain the idea as long as I should have, but uh, there were. There were uh, I kept in touch with them because in those days, yeah. getting through your postgraduate training in primary care much much quicker. So I found myself, as I'm trying to apply for my registrar jobs, some of my colleagues became partners yes. in primary care settings in Ireland. So I've had a lot of exposure to that, yes. I, I, I partly asked the question, apart from wanting to know more about you as a person, yeah. partly asked the question because from a GP's perspective, um, the diseases that people have and the treatment on there's only a tiny part and not necessarily the most important part of the role. Yeah. And people come in with a whole mishmash yeah. of life problems. And part of my job is to help them tease those apart and work out what is medical and what should not be medicalised. Yeah. And I think that um, some concerns about your role leading this from the primary care sector would yeah. be your lack of experience in that area. How would you respond to those critics? Well, I'll respond... To those, but first, let me acknowledge. Uh, I think I could be even more uh, explicit on what you've been. Primary care is a very holistic uh, way. The best primary care provisions I've seen, whether it's in this country or elsewhere, is this holistic approach to care. It's not just healthcare. Mm-hmm. It is healthcare, social care. You know, all aspects of care that a community needs. So. The primary care's relationship with this community is very different than any other healthcare provider that you can think of, whether it's in this country or outside. That is, that is the essence. That is the perp- that is a significant part of the purpose of primary care provision. Uh, uh, the answer to your second question is very much reflected on the complexity of medicine mm-hmm. and healthcare. Complexity to such a degree is, you know, who should lead a healthcare review? Should it be a surgeon? Should it be a GP? Should it be a, a neurologist, a specialist physician? Uh, should it be a nurse? Should it be a midwife? I mean, that's a completely different thing. I have, I just happen to be uh, extremely, uh, uh, you know, fortunate to be in the position I am yes. in. Uh, it's a privilege to be asked to do something like this, and. So that's the reason I've, I've you know, committed myself to do this piece of work. I think ultimately you need to ask, what's the purpose of all, us, all of us working in healthcare? Yes. What we're trying to achieve here is to improve the quality of care to the patients we serve. That is what brings us together. Now, once we start saying, well, you wear a primary care hat and I wore a surgical hat, then I think we in itself, by just making that statement, we build silos between me and you yes. because you're yes. interviewing me as a primary care physician and I'm telling you as a surgeon. That's not, uh, I think most colleagues, whether they're in primary care, they need to look at healthcare outside their box. Yes. And I will constantly challenge myself on a daily basis to look yes. at the healthcare completely out of my box. Because once I start looking at it from a surgeon's perspective, I'm sure we won't get anywhere. Thank you. Let's move on to the next section about um, integrated health, integrating healthcare. Um, I know that. Intrinsic to your thinking is that we need better integration. 
in which local practitioners and patients work together to improve health. You've just mentioned the primary secondary care collaboration that needs to be improved. Both of those horizontal and vertical dimensions need to be addressed. What is your view about the main principles underpinning successful integration? I think, well, first of all, let's look at the history and where we are now, and we were where as even 10 years ago or even 20 years ago, as I told you my example in the Centre Middlesex Hospital. Healthcare is becoming, thanks to technology, uh, you know, the advances in healthcare that we're seeing have been tremendous. Whether you happen to be a patient, the receiving end of healthcare, whether you happen to be a healthcare provider, providing healthcare. But one of the side effects of any new intervention or a new treatment is, as you complicate a system, as you come into complex systems, uh, and healthcare I will describe as a very complex adaptive system. When you see systems like that, and if you don't maintain the purpose, and the purpose is from the patient's perspective, is a pathway of care that from a patient's perspective they don't really understand some of these fragmented silos that because yes. of the complexity of healthcare has created, then we lose, we lose the site where it's going. So if there's one purpose, one of the other purposes, because quality isn't just about outcome. Quality is also about the experience of the user. Right. If you look at the experience of the user, very, very clear messages coming. When I did the London Review as a clinician, where I'm doing the National Review now as a minister, clear feedback from patients. The care we're receiving is fragmented. We want more integration. Right. Now, that is the challenge. Now, the solution is, is different. There is no, never one solution to a problem. I would be the first person to admit that. And the solution could only be designed at a local level, ba based on local circumstances. So a mixture, the principle, a mixture of, so the principles is clear. The principle for me is to achieve that purpose of integrated patient-centered care, which I've described as personalized care which is care tailored around the needs of the patients. That's my definition of it. Now, how do you achieve that? I think no one sitting in this department could make that happen. We can put the right levers in to allow us a degree of integration. But any integration we have to remember, and I'm very, very explicit about this, should not in any way challenge or change what's good mm -hmm. at the moment. And I've made this statement numerous times before. We should be very proud on the quality of primary care we have in this country. We have achieved historically in the history of the NHS since its inception in 1948 a primary care provision, which is actually something that all of our, not just primary care colleagues, the healthcare system in this country should be very proud of. But any system over 60 years old gets challenged. The challenge of technology and fragmentation is one and we need to find local solutions, either vertical or horizontal integration, depends on the, on the local circumstances, because these two solutions are very different in different parts of the country. So you mentioned inside that very helpful yeah. statement, uh, the important role of signposting the various uh, options and also taking care to the quality of every link in the chain. Absolutely. But you also There's mentioned... quality of process. Quality of process. Be beside the quality of what primary care colleagues deliver, yes. which is excellent. Beside the quality of my secondary care colleagues, which provide is excellent, or my social care colleagues do, it's the, it's the bit in between okay. where there are the, the little holes that patients fall into.
then would you also say that because there are thousands and thousands of care pathways and hundreds or tens of thousands of practitioners that the overwhelmingness of it all might make uh, the whole system feel um, overwhelming to practitioners and patients and we collectively need to think through solutions to that. Absolutely and to be fair that is if I've learned something out of these two reviews that I've done in London and what I'm doing at the moment. The value of bringing collective practitioners based on a pathway mm -hmm. into a room and say let's talk about any one of us who may have a condition out of these eight pathways from birth to end of life. What is the type of care we wish to see? That's question one. Question two, let's test this against the evidence base because at the end of the day all of us who practice healthcare medicine, whether you're a nurse or a doc, there's a pool of evidence base out there. We constantly need to challenge ourselves with that evidence base and then design the best pathway and try ourselves to remove these what I call virtual boundaries yes. that actually only exist in our minds. Patients don't see these boundaries. The payer doesn't see these boundaries either. That might be a helpful link into uh, a discussion on polyclinics. Yes. Um, if I hear you rightly in what you said there is that by getting groups of colleagues together to clarify what are the care pathways and the ways of communicating that is helpful rather than people doing things very individually and also the overwhelming mass of it all which would overwhelm one individual may be managed more clearly by groups of people is that sort of a correct absolutely take I on strongly believe that we, the more we get people of different from these different uh, healthcare settings, which is historically we build our mind, primary, secondary, tertiary, uh, and colleagues doesn't mean just medical colleagues, it means nursing colleagues. And I've seen numerous examples, I do that in my own practice now. Ten years ago we did not have a multidisciplinary meeting once a week discussing every case mm -hmm. of cancer which I'm about to operate on. Now we do that, and to be fair, to be I mean, something we should also be very proud of in relation to the cancer reform and the cancer plan is that we are the only country actually achieving compliance rates of a multidisciplinary meeting per patient discussion in about 95% of the cases. I go to across the Atlantic to places like Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. They still haven't achieved the degree of multidisciplinary discussions. That is one of the most refreshing things. Now, if we do multidisciplinary meeting, not on a patient, but on a service redesign, which is what I'm referring to, mm -hmm. then you will come up with some fascinating outputs from that. And that is, the, that is the process in which I went through in eight different pathways, not personally, with about 200 clinicians in London, some of which were eminent primary care physicians in London. So if we can sort of agree that the complexity and the enormity of this requires multidisciplinary working, if I translate that to the primary care field, yes. Explain to me how polyclinics are going to help. Because one argument would say that large buildings are impersonal, they fragment teams, they're not conducive to relationship uh, building. And we don't want that to happen. We want the opposite. We want friendly relationships, good understanding of the system, and good collaboration across the sectors. How can a polyclinic achieve the good rather than have a negative effect? Well, I think, first of all, let me put... I'm not correcting you, but let me put on record, polyclinics are not buildings. Uh, polyclinics are my way of describing integrated service 
provision. That is what polyclinics are. And I described a uh, number of ways in which a polyclinic could be structured. And my, you know, my small little brain came up with three models of a federated model, maybe in an area where groups may wish to be in a building together but have separate practices. Uh, finally, they, you, you, in, in other words, you could have five different practices, but in a in a in a geographical area, co-located, not nece not necessarily in the same building, uh, or it could be the federated model. And I was very very pleased to see the description of the federated model uh, and the leadership of the Royal College of General Practice when you published three months later in September uh, your vision of primary care. Uh, and then subsequent to that, I saw the NHS Alliance and also more recently the NHS Confed. Yes. So I think what we've done is that we've started a healthy debate and we are also coming to the consensus of what our investment, our reform should be in primary and community setting. Because you don't, you, 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 I think if I could take you back to the first, you don't see many secondary care clinicians, if, you, if I'm considered as that because I'm a surgeon, actually believe that the next 10 years, the most, the biggest opportunities we have in healthcare is primary and community. Right. You know, there aren't, there aren't people who will step up secondary care and say, actually, it's not where I'm working, it's actually out in primary and community setting. And the reason I say that is because I strongly believe in that based on the evidence that I gathered when I did London. When I did London, it became very apparent to me, even I work in the healthcare system, which should have been apparent to me, that the biggest challenges facing healthcare in London over the next decade is, firstly, the aging population, secondly, long-term conditions, which is the success of what we have done over the last 10 years to 15 years, converting in an acute lethal illness into a chronic long-term condition. Third, a, a, a population that is very mobile in London. So I felt strongly, if you look at these three and the evidence base that we have, the dynamics of change at the moment, came, came, I came to the conclusion that the investment has to be in primary community setting. But again, I'd like to reinforce the point. It's not to change what's good now. It's to build what we have now to address some of the problems we have now and potentially some of the major challenges that if we don't sort out now, we will have a paralyzed healthcare system, despite the massive expenditure of taxpayers' money into a health economy like London. I hear that as a, a positive challenge to PCTs, practice-based commissioning groups, GPs, Absolutely. and all primary care workers to think wisely about the polyclinic notion. Yes as an attempt to produce quality integrated care of collaborative for the local good and, and not get distracted by, by the idea Building. that this is meant to be a building. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I've stated that, I've, you know, I've constantly stated that, whether it was in the report, whether it was subsequent to the report, mm. whether it was in the Health Select Committee, which I attended to purpose to, to, to do that. But, you know, I think, I've, you know, I, I feel Actually, if I could just acknowledge that, I feel uh, that I've done a lot of good by starting this debate. But at the end of the the end of the day, uh, I think the solutions are local. And that thought process in July and the publication of the report has stimulated even more expert input, like the publication of the Royal College of General Practitioners. 
uh, in September because that clearly said, well, these are the models again, but we as primary care physicians, as a professional body, believe this probably will be the preferred mo model uh, in, in the future. So I think we're all saying se semantics is what we're talking about here. I think that some people have got distracted by the notion of buildings from the fun a more fundamental purpose, and I hope that this interview can do, go some way towards rectifying that misunderstanding. Absolutely. I, I also heard you say inside that that it's not just enough to do this, we need to evaluate it. Absolutely. We need to evaluate both in the vertical dimension of yep. uh, care pathways for medical conditions and in the horizontal Absolutely. dimension of cross-organisation, multidisciplinary partnerships. Absolutely. Could I just add to that? We should always evaluate what we're doing now as well evaluating pilots because it is not uncommon. We always feel that what we have now is good, but that is not the case. Sometimes we need to evaluate. I evaluate what I do on a regular basis. If I didn't evaluate what I did on a regular basis, I would have not started to do laparoscopic surgery. I would have not started to do day surgery. I would have not started to do... Uh, so I think any system we have, and that is why, uh, that is what I believe professional leadership is all about. Uh, because if we don't constantly evaluate what we are doing as professionals, then someone else will come in and try to find a solution. And I strongly of the, one of those who believes that that is, and, and I suspect that is the purpose of my appointment here. Because, you know, we're getting someone uh, you know, from works in the system to come and give a, a, that different flavour of what health policy could be converged where our aspirations are in healthcare professionals in improving care. Thank you. Moving on, um, perhaps inevitably from where you're coming from and yep. the needs of these reviews, um, some of the, or many of the specific uh, tools or ways of achieving success that you promote have been perceived as very top-down as opposed to more bottom-up solutions. For example, you advocate academic health sciences centres but don't mention uh, the need for local development units to foster local collaborations. What do you say to your critics about the balance of top-down and bottom-up? I, 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 I am a great believer in bottom-up. Uh, you know, um, my, my purpose in life always has been bottom-up and at all levels, whether I happen to be in the ward, whether I happen to be, you know, that is when, I'm, when I want to change something in a ward environment, I go and talk to the student nurses on the ward because they know exactly what is happening in the ward. Could I just remind the audience, I think this is very important because when I did the London Review, it was a bottom-up. I was a clinician working in a hospital. Uh, I was invited by then the Strategic Health Authority, who felt that there was a gap between what the top was sending down versus what they wanted to see, a vision for London, which they felt London was very different. And that is how I built the momentum very quickly, because suddenly there were 200 clinicians in London who had a tremendous desire to be part of this review. So the London review was a very top, sorry, very bottom-up yes. approach to care. And I kept those principles even when I joined the department. There are nine different reviews across the country. Now, you may ask yourself, is the SHA bottom enough? Mm -hmm. And the, um, yeah, you have a point because I think, you know, the more granular you go, the better it is. But we picked up GPs, we picked up mm -hmm. nurses, we picked up social care workers, we picked up, you know, public health docs from actually different providers and different yes. commissioners in London and brought them together around eight pathways and said, this is it, 
let's design a system from bottom up. And the whole, and the, what was unique about that, you, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't asked me yet, because London was never short of reviews. If you look yeah. at history of London, I could take you back to 1928, someone called Dawson, who did the first review. Actually, in fact, he got involved in polyclinics in those days. He described something. I have some references to that. I'll be and back then, for those. Absolutely. And then, you know, you know, the latest ones we've seen, we've seen, you know, Turnberg, we've seen, mm. uh, and, and others. So I think, but these reviews, if you really look at them, they were mostly about buildings, number of beds. History of the NHS. Number yes. of beds. They weren't a bottom-up, clinically-led, evidence-based report. So I think it's important, again, to clarify from... Uh, critics where it's, if they are critics, is in actual fact London Report was a bottom up and what we're doing in the rest of the country is what we've learned from London. But there's another principle to that, which is very important. What works for London doesn't necessarily work elsewhere. Right. So that is why we need to do exactly the same bottom up in nine different regions. And I imagine you would put a challenge to our CGP members and all primary care workers to continue that bottom-up thinking Absolutely. and not to just accept things the way they are, but constantly ask questions about how to make uh, environments for health. Absolutely. And I, 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 think, I think we all need to reach that maturity, to be fair, not just the Department of Health, because mm -hmm. people have been critical of the Department of Health being top-down. Actually, all the national organisations need to think about bottom-up. Because the purpose in the future, whether you're the Royal College of General Practice, whether you're Royal College of Surgeons, and I've had this debate with presidents of colleges, we really need to talk to our, it's the, our constituents who need to design the care, not us, whether you have, as I said, whether you happen to be a minister here or a president of a college, it's the constituents who need to design healthcare. And that is the process in which we organise it. That leads on, uh, it seems to me, to a discussion about non-medics. <clears throat> I mean, there is, historically nurses have adopted quite a nurturing role for patients. Um, there is a bit of a nursing crisis in London. Yeah. Nurses feel that they've been disenfranchised from the development process. Uh, the, the devolution of the provider function is causing a great deal of uncertainty among them. What is your view about the future nursing roles and how should the nursing voice be best heard in local policy? Sure. May I just clarify the devolution of the provider element? You said which, what, what bit is the, that? Is the the, the PCT um, provider. Element? That's right. The, the communities. Communities. I beg your pardon. Okay, I am fine. such a GP on time. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Well, firstly, I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a, extremely strong believer in my whole career, since back in '84, uh, that, you know, nurse leadership, and. Uh, uh, is not just vital, it's the crux of the system. No question about that. I don't think any, you know, you recognize that very quickly, that no ward, no GP practice, no community system could work without the competencies and the leadership that the nurses play and that extremely important role that they play. And I was delighted back in the year 2000 when the NHS plan came out. There was a very strong, uh, incentives and a very strong leadership expressed in that report in the role of the nurse of the future and uh, you know and, and nurses are playing a significantly greater leadership role and we see this you know you see it in your practice manager you know uh, you know your your practice is managed by most practices are nurse leadership uh, nurses play a significant role in providing health care 
uh, I know in you know, 20 years ago what I did and what I'm doing now, a significant amount of work that I used to provide, for example, back in 1995, I instigate a nurse endoscopy role. That didn't go down very well with my, clinic, my medical colleagues, I could tell you that. And uh, within three years, the individual, Paula Taylor, who became a nurse consultant, she became the Nurse of the Year Award. I recognized very quickly that I could provide a much better quality care to the patients that are filling up in my clinic those days into, if we have, uh, uh, a more multidisciplinary approach in provision, mm -hmm. not just uh, uh, in provision. So we've had nurse endoscopy. We have now three specialist nurses. We have a nurse consultant in the team. It was me and a nurse before. The three specialist nurses, one nurse consultant, and two stoma nurses in my colorectal service. Uh, you go to a ward, nurse leadership is extremely important. Uh, uh, I strongly believe we need to encourage innovation in nursing because whether that's in primary care or because I think I, do, I want to come back to one point which I probably didn't say from when you mentioned the word polyclinics. I also believe that we really need to inject uh, time and some innovation thinking in primary community setting as well, uh, which, you know. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, I'm talking about some of the uh, more academic involvement, more, uh, you know, there's tremendous opportunities of translation research in primary community setting. And I think we need, you know, we, we, we need, we really need to make investment in that because I think, uh, I think we need to also enhance the profile of that in, in the university sector. Right. You know, I remember some of the most creative, 10 years ago, we had Brian Jarman, who was internationally leading when it comes to primary care. You know, we really need to bring in uh, and stimulate that in primary community setting, because I think there are wonderful opportunities there in that. So back to the nursing side of things, I strongly believe in, in, in the nurses' role, role levels. Also, they're playing some management roles now, as you probably know. You know, the SHA does have uh, one of the, uh, you know, they have a senior nurse leadership role uh, who sits on the board. A lot of, most NHS trust have nursing directors who sit on the board. And as you very eloquently have managed in primary care, nurses are playing more important roles. And I've also seen in some very, which is fantastic, nurse, nurse partners in mm -hmm. some practices who are playing the dual role of both managing and leading, but also providing healthcare. So I, I read into that, that um, universal agreement of the importance to develop the nursing role. There may be some urgency to develop um, platforms from which they can develop their, those roles and exert those leadership Absolutely. roles, including practice-based commissioning. Absolutely, practice-based commissioning. I mean, could I just say about primary care, through my eyes, isn't about GPs. If, you know, I'm more than happy for you to say that. Primary care is what we see in primary care. The strengths of primary care is the multidisciplinary type of approach to care. Nurses make a significant contribution, either the provision of care or even the commissioning of care. I'm quite sure the readers of this journal would heartily agree with that, um, although sometimes have some difficulty in practically realising it yes. owing to the present constraints in the system. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just something briefly about um, health and social care. You and Lord Wanless have both emphasised the need to integrate health and social care, but they 
belonging in different parts of the systems, different accountability mechanisms, different cultures, ge different geographical boundaries. Um, how do you see the potential to realise integration between health and social care? I think, I think there are tremendous opportunities there, and it's not uncommon that we get fixated about structures, because they are separate, they have separate accountabilities. That means if they were together, it would work better. We've tried that before. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean is the right answer. I think there are many opportunities here. I think if we're really going to tackle some of the challenges of the future, for example, long-term conditions, uh, we need a more closely working, uh, uh, getting these two sectors to work more closely. Now, there are two different systems in one way. I think the one that is probably one of the challenging one is that you know, the social care system is a mean-tested system versus healthcare, which is not. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean why you shouldn't be working together if you have the right incentives in the system. I think I've seen some fantastic examples in London, specifically, uh, if you look at Westminster PCT working with the local health authority, is that they have service level agreements in looking and managing certain conditions. And I think mental health is a good example of that. And I think we really need to start putting the right incentives and the commissioners to use the light levers in which joint commissioning might be the solution to a lot of these issues. And and that is, again, a lever that primary uh, yes. community services have. And we need to make the best of that of those levers. And perhaps also a challenge there to the um, academic institutions to provide uh, programs to teach those skills to be able to manage that level of um, operation, which is novel in Ab primary care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could I just come back to one point you raised, because I think probably I didn't answer the specific point. You said the evidence base, uh, sorry, the bottom-up, and mm -hmm. you refer to Academic Health Sciences Centre. Uh, it was bottom-up, I think I made that case, but the, the, the reason of the Academic Health Sciences Centres. Two minutes. Okay. Yeah. The Academic Health Sciences Centres. I recognised, if you look at London, London is, you know, one of the you know, one of the best known capital cities on this globe. Mm -hmm. You know, it competes when it comes to business. And you know, if you just look at where the city of London is on the business world, uh, if you look at science, you will then come across at least three or four universities where they are actually also competing globally. I'll give you an example of Imperial where I work, and I've, I've never, never been shy in saying this. Imperial College competes is the fourth bio, is fourth ranked fourth on global biomedical research. Now you have this organisation which is ranking fourth, and you have, and we know its business cannot run if its hospital business is not supporting it. Why do we have a fourth ranking, and we don't have a hospital that is ranking in any way in the UK? So the purpose of that very clearly is that a closer integration of clinical service and the scientific output will actually the sum of which would be greater than its parts. And the evidence base for that was, and clearly there, if you cross the Atlantic and see, some of the tremendous translational work, the innovation uptake in clinical practice when you have the two working together. And that was one of the reasons why we suggested that we should have, in London being the capital, uh, at least a uh, few of these which will compete on the international basis. You know, we need to start changing our way of thinking. We need, we need to talk about world-class healthcare. We can do this.
you know, we, we, we need to really think out of the box and bring in and be confident enough, because if we're not confident in where we're trying to get there, we won't get there. Uh, but, and also the mechanisms. My guess is that, well, I read into what you're saying, a challenge to PCTs to increase their partnerships with academic institutions, to find a win-win whereby academics can research in primary care and primary care can think about its own domain Absolutely. as an equal partnership. Absolutely. We talk about bringing the problem from the bed to the, to the bench. You know, there's a, I mean, the primary community setting is a huge bed base. Just look at that holistic approach yep. of healthcare. We're not just talking about health, we're talking about millions of interactions on a daily basis that we can really capture a tremendous amount of information to find solutions, a more and better holistic approach. At the end of the day, why are we all at this business? Purely to improve the care of patients we look after. Not just patients, public. Last question. How can the RCGP members, and this journal particularly, be most helpful to you to develop truly integrated healthcare that uses the strengths of both specialist and generalist health workers to improve the quality of services for our patients? It's a professional body. Any professional body, from my perspective, has a role to play in exercising leadership. I've been very grateful to the leadership that the college has exercised over the last eight months, whether it's in publications, whether it's the meetings I've had with senior members of council or whether it's its president. And I very much hope that we will keep that momentum going. And at the end of the day, if we just remind ourselves what is the purpose of what we're doing, whether you happen to be the Royal College or a fellow of the Royal College of General Practice, or you happen to be a member of any or other organization who's interacting with the review, is to exercise that leadership that what we're trying to change here is to improve things rather than try to get sucked in into other aspects of uh, which are essentially irrelevant. Lord Darcy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Brilliant. Is that all right?